Acts chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 36 this morning. Uh, Last week, at the end of our passage, we saw where Paul had finally arrived in Jerusalem. He's been gathering and offering from the Macedonian churches for about a year uh, so that he could present this offering to suffering brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. There's a famine going on and they're really struggling. And so you have uh, the Macedonian churches, these Gentile churches who have come together. They've put their, pulled their money together in order to uh, offer a, an offering to these suffering people. And we also see that some of those people have joined with Paul as he's traveled to go up to show unity with the church there in Jerusalem. But oddly enough, though, uh, even though this is all of what Paul is doing, uh, there is no mention of it when Luke explains Paul's arrival in Jerusalem. Like when what we read today, there's no mention of this offering that he's been gathering for the last year. Uh, He's been spending a lot of time doing that, but Luke seems to be dedicated at this point in the, the story of Acts to show and focus on the parallels of Paul's life with the life of Jesus. Right? So as they are both making their uh, journey towards Jerusalem, there's, there's something about this offering that just falls through the cracks. Uh, but since he is pointing out these similarities that are happening between Paul and Jesus, I also want, because the last stretch of this book is very similar to the last stretch of the uh, Gospel of Matthew, which we studied a couple of, I guess it's about a year ago at this point, uh, I want to point out some of these similarities uh, so that as we finish up these last seven chapters, uh, you have this in mind as we go forward. And so just some of these similarities, both have been told that suffering awaits them in Jerusalem as they go, but they still have to go. Right? Jesus goes to be the atoning sacrifice for all sin on the cross. And so he has to go. Paul was told that every town that he went in, the Holy Spirit's telling him, there's going to be suffering, you're going to be incarcerated, there's going to be trouble when you get to Jerusalem, but you still have to go. Right? Both are obedient to that call. Right? We see uh, that both Paul and Jesus resolutely make their way to Jerusalem despite the struggles that are promised to them. They are not going unaware of what's waiting for them when they get there. And so they both are obedient to the call. We see that both are, and I'm going to put this in quotation marks, hindered to a certain degree by other believers as they make their way. Jesus has this infamous encounter with Peter from Matthew 16, verses 21 to 28. It says, From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But for whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
And so we see last week, Paul dealt with similar issues where the prophecies that he is going to struggle are very clear to everybody. Every time he goes to a city, they are aware that he's getting ready to struggle. And the believers in his group and also the believers in Tyre, they both plead with him not to go to Jerusalem. Right? Paul takes the words of Jesus seriously that he said here to his disciples at the end of Matthew, or in the middle of Matthew, he said, you know, take up your cross and follow me. And so Paul is dead set on taking up his cross and following Jesus. Right? Paul said in verse 13 of Acts 21, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not only ready to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So both, knowing what's coming, resolutely set out, both are hindered a little bit by the people that are around them because they don't want to see them die. Um, But neither Jesus nor Paul are going to be uh, persuaded to abandon what God called them to do. When they get to Jerusalem, we see that both of them are rejected by their own people. Both of them find themselves unjustly imprisoned at the hands of the Romans. Right? Both will experience a willful misrepresentation by false witnesses. So they're just trying to throw them under the bus and they, they're willing to lie to do it if at all necessary. Both will eventually be slapped in the face in court. And both hear a frenzied mob scream away with him. All right? So don't, don't let the seven chapters fool you. It's still going to take a few minutes for us to get to the end of this. In fact, I struggled a lot this week with the idea of where to stop today uh, because we're getting ready. Like we're, This is the roller coaster part. It's about to start going downhill and doing the twists and turns, and I really wanted to jump on it, right? But I thought, man, that's going to be a lot to digest this week if we do all that. So that's the reason why we're stopping at 36. Like I was like, chapter 22, verse 40, let's go. But no, that's a little bit much. So we've still got some time here, probably about two months. Uh, two months of Sundays. Um, But as we do this, I want you to think about the similarities of Paul and how he is like Jesus as we look at these very public final works uh, in the book of Acts. So we're going to see that Paul's path leads him down a very uh, similar one to Jesus and his desire to honor God. And so I want to think about that, and I want to pray before we jump in. But as we go, consider those things as we uh, work through the last few chapters of Acts. So let's pray together. Father, it is our joy uh, to sing your praises this morning, to, uh, to worship you here, uh, come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to uh, do our very best to, to honor you the way that Paul did. Uh, in his life. And we have this promise that if we are faithful to uh, your message and to your kingdom, that there will be struggle and, and, and sacrifice necessary. There will be persecution that occurs uh, because of people who are opposed uh, to the gospel of Jesus. And so, uh, Lord, help us to ready ourselves uh, to be obedient and ready ourselves to endure in uh, much the same way that Paul does in uh, the tail end of these, uh, book, this book of Acts. Well, we love you. Pray that you'll help us to honor you through this time today. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. All right, Acts 
21. We're going to be reading uh, verses 15 to 25 to start with this morning. It says, After this we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went up, went up with us and brought us to Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed and are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we've written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. So, verse 15 is where we stopped last week. We see uh, that Paul has made his way up to Jerusalem. Uh, and no matter where you are, it's always up to Jerusalem because it's a city on a hill. And so everybody goes up to Jerusalem no matter what direction they're coming from. Uh, and so we see that Paul and his group are staying with uh, a believer named Manasin. So uh, another opportunity for hospitality is seen here by another brother in Christ. And then after they stay with him the next day, they go in to see James. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. All right, so well acquainted with the Savior as he grew up with him. Um, and he is the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so he is the leader, so he's going in to talk to them, and he's going in to talk to all the other elders of the church that are there in Jerusalem. And Paul shares with them the work that God has done among the Gentiles. And so, I mean, he's got a lot to share, right? He has done a lot of work since the last time they saw each other. And we see there that the work of God is celebrated among the believers, right? There's, there's no jealousy. There's no one looking at Paul and saying, man, I wish I had his ministry. Or no, there's no distrust. They're like, yeah, sure, all that happened, Paul, right? Some kid fell out of a third-story window and you hugged him and he came back to life. Okay, sure you did, right? There's no distrust, there's nothing but celebration about all the things that God has done through Paul for, the, for his kingdom. And Paul takes no pleasure in patting himself on the back. He's not saying, hey, look at all that I have done. He's saying, look at all that God has done through me. Right? And it says, after hearing all this, James addresses an issue that's present among the Jewish Christians. He says that thousands of Jews have come together or come to faith in Christ. And we should all celebrate that, right? Which is a cause of rejoicing, for rejoicing. Uh, but there are some Jews who are zealous for the law and they have heard some false accusations about Paul, right? The issue, James tells us, says you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, or live according to our customs. Now, this is patently false. Right? This is not true in any way, shape, or form. Um, but 
even if it is true, which it's not, uh, let's make a few things clear. Right? What he's being accused of is not a salvation issue. All right? Paul and James both agree that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All right, so the things that he's being accused of here about not circumcising their children or not living according to their customs, what he's being accused of is not a salvation problem. He's not changing the gospel. He's not being accused of changing the gospel. Right? It's not a moral law issue either. All right, so the moral law is based on God's nature and his character. All right, so uh, it does not change because God does not change. And so when we're talking about moral law, we're discussing things like, you know, it's always wrong to murder someone. Right? It's always wrong to sleep with someone that's not your spouse. Right? It's always wrong to worship an idol. It's always wrong because this is part of the moral law. It's part of who God is, and it does not change, right? So that's what we're talking about when I say moral law. So none of the things that he's being accused of goes against the moral law. So it's not sin. Right? It's also not a Gentile issue. Right? What was taught to the Gentiles was discussed back in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. I'm not expecting you all to remember that, but, but James does mention a little bit of what he's referring to in verse 25. So you can see kind of what they, the conclusion that they came to uh, where a letter was sent out to the Gentile churches that told them to stay away from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. Right? And the design of this letter was not to tell the Gentile believers how to worship like their Jewish brothers and sisters, it was designed to help Gentile believers worship with their Jewish brothers and sisters. All right, so they're trying to help the Gentiles avoid some major issues that would disgust the Jewish believers due to their heritage. And so they're, all they're saying with this kind of stuff here, like the, the food sacrifice, the idols, anything with blood in it, uh, you know that the, the Jews have an issue with pork and pigs. And so basically, in our language, it would be like getting a letter from James that said, hey, how about the next time you decide to go worship with that Jewish brother and sister, don't eat the pork barbecue sandwich with a side of bacon. Right? That's going to be offensive to the person that you're sitting next to. And so how about you put down some of your rights and abstain from those things so that you can worship together in unity with these brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's what he's addressing here. So again, we're not talking about issues with the Gentiles. Your work with the Gentiles is not in question here. The concern here comes from Jewish cultural practices. Right? So the idea is, should Jewish Christians cease from following certain uh, cultural traditions once they begin following Christ? And we discussed a good deal uh, when we were doing our study of the Gospel of Matthew that many of these Jewish cultural practices, uh, are, they're treated like the law, but they're not actually part of the law. It's not actually what God said, or at least the details of it aren't exactly what God said. And they're added on, and they become part of Jewish canon 
And so people just automatically think like when you, it's kind of like when you hear somebody say something enough and you start to think that that's in the Bible, but it's really not. God helps those who help themselves, right? People will, you know, that's second hesitations, right? Like, no, no, that's not in the scriptures at all, right? Or cleanliness is next to godliness, right? That's got to be in scripture, right? Nope. Benjamin Franklin said that, I'm pretty sure. Right, so we hear these things enough, and they're said enough by people that we know to be Christians, and so we think, okay, well, that must be in the Bible, but it's not. And that's what's happening with some of these Jewish cultural traditions. They're heard over and over again, and they're treated as though they're the law of God when they're not really uh, part of God's law. And so um, because of that, there are some things that Jewish believers would be able to stop doing uh, after they became born again. Right? All of these added on things. They could stop these things. They can also stop the ceremonial washings because they're no longer necessary. Right? Purification rituals aren't necessary because Jesus' atoning death on the cross purifies believers once and for all. Right? So we don't have to go, you know, before we come in here, we don't have to wash our hands and we don't have to kneel down and you know, put oil on our head and do all this kind of stuff to walk in here. Right? Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we are now free in Christ. We can come into the presence of God without having to do purification rituals because Jesus was the purification ritual. And now we have his righteousness. And so we can come before God anytime we want to because of our status in Christ. So there's no need to go through all the ritual purification. Uh, believers don't need to avoid dead bodies anymore because it's not going to cause them to be unclean. Jesus was clear. He's like, it's not what goes into the body or what you touch that makes you unclean. It's what comes out. It's what's in your heart that makes you unclean. And Jesus gives you a new heart. And so we don't need to follow these rituals. So things like this, it would be okay for Paul to tell Jewish Christians that you can stop doing these things. Right? He wouldn't be breaking any kind of law. But the big issue here is that Paul hasn't done any of that. Right, he goes to bat once upon a time, way back in Acts 15, for the Gentiles uh, stating that they don't need to be circumcised or to follow any of the ceremonial law to be a Christian. But Paul has never once demanded that the Jews abandon circumcision to follow Christ, even though circumcision is no longer the symbol that shows that one is part of the people of God. Right? Salvation comes, then we're baptized. That's the new symbol that states publicly to the world that I'm a follower of Jesus. If you look at my life, it's going to look like that of Christ. And so circumcision is no longer the symbol that says this is a person in the kingdom of God. Now it's baptism. And so they could stop circumcising their children and still not be breaking any of God's laws. All right. In fact, Paul had Timothy circumcised as a grown man. Right. Uh, because he wanted to avoid running into issues with unbelieving Jews. Right? Paul and Timothy were both willing to remove a stumbling block from their ministry, from the unbelieving Jews path to belief, even though it was not necessary for them to do that in order to appease God. Right. Paul was willing to do it. Timothy was willing to have it done in order to win people to Christ. And could you imagine at this point, if you were Timothy and you heard that Paul was telling all these Jewish 
believers just abandon this. It's like, what did you, you did what to me, and now you're telling everybody that this doesn't matter? <laughs> we have some issues, Paul. We need to talk. But none of this has happened. It's all false accusations. None of it is real. But something needs to be done. All right, so what is to be done? The accusations are out there, whether they're true or not. They need to be addressed. And we see that both Paul and James, they have a desire for unity. They have a desire for a, a lack of hostility among the church. And so James wants Paul to prove to the zealous Jewish Christians that he is not, in fact, telling Jewish believers to forsake Jewish traditions. He thinks the best way to do that is to have Paul participate in what appears to be the end of a Nazarite vow that four men are wrapping up the next day in the temple. Right? So this, the idea is that this is going to show Paul's solidarity with Jewish culture. And if you're not familiar, we talked about the Nazarite vow uh, briefly when it seemed like Paul was going through one of those in Acts chapter 18. But in case you're not familiar with it, the, the Nazarite vow is found in Numbers chapter 6. All right? It's a voluntary act that is meant to show your dedication to the Lord. Right? It can be done by either men or women, uh, and it has a very specific time frame in which it's going to take place. So think in our terms, we might think of it like Lent. Right? So there's a very specific start date. There's a very specific end date. And in that, you're going to show your dedication uh, to the Lord. It has certain specific requirements and restrictions, so you can't drink alcohol, and in fact, you can't even touch grapes. Grapes, raisins, none of it. You can't touch it at all. So no alcohol, no eating or touching grapes or raisins, and you can't cut your hair for the entire length of the vow. So your hair's growing out, uh, and you must stay away from a dead body. So even if, if you want to honor your vow, even if your parents die, in the midst of that vow, then if you want to be near them, then you have to break your vow and start all over again. All right. Again, this is a voluntary thing, so it's not like condemnation comes from having to break this vow. It's just not complete. All right. At the conclusion of the vow, there's a sacrifice that's made, and the candidate's hair is cut, and they place that on the altar along with the sacrifice. And the priest will complete the sacrificial process, and that officially ends the vow. So at that point, you're free to do all the things that were restricted before. Um, and this is a very public ending to a ritual. All right, so you're going to come in, you're going to have these, you're going to have your sacrifice. You got this long hair that's matted and, and crazy, uh, and so you're going to go into the temple and have that fairly publicly ended. All right, so people are going to see this. And so because of that, and because this is completely voluntary, the whole vow is voluntary, so it would be a good way to get some PR out there on, for Paul's approval. All right? And that's what this really is. This is a public relations stunt. Okay? Because as far as anyone knows, Paul is not against any of these actual customs. And so this is just to change the, Paul's perspective in the eyes of these zealous Jewish Christians. Um, and I'm going to be real honest with you. All right. I try to be honest with you when I'm up here. When I read this for the first time and read James's solution to this, my sin nature flares up. All right. My initial reaction is who cares what untrue people, untrue things people think about Paul are? 
Like, who cares? Like, if you believe something that's not true about me, I don't care. Right? Because it's not true. These things are obviously not true. And if it were true, it would be a different story. If you're like, hey, you know, I hear you're doing these things and I'm actually doing those things, that's a different story. I need to change those things. Right? But it's not true. And so in my mind, I'm sitting there going, James, why aren't you defending Paul? Why aren't you going to bat for Paul? Tell those people to mind their own business. Right? Why are you making Paul go through this song and dance for people who are wrong? They're wrong. They're not intentionally wrong. You know, it's not like they're out there spreading lies. They've heard this stuff is true. But look, you guys, everybody should not believe assumptions. Right? Don't believe anything is true until you have proof that that thing is true. Well, these people think that, do they? How do you know? Did they tell you that? Did you hear them say that? Well, no, but I just know. No, you don't. You don't know. So these people, they have all this wrong. James wants Paul to dance for them. And I'm sitting there going, don't do it. Don't do it, Paul. Stand up for yourself. Stand up for your rights. You know, tell them that you're just wrong. They're wrong. And I'm not going to do it. Paul does none of this. Not one bit. What does he do? He submits himself to the elders' leadership within the church. He's doing this so that he can protect the unity of the church. Right? And I'm amazed at Paul's humility in this. I mean, right now, we are nearly two decades in. According to a biblical timeline, it says that this is roughly 17 years from the Damascus Road experience to right now in the book of Acts roughly 17 years, that the Apostle Paul has been the Apostle Paul. Right? And I think I've made it pretty clear that like, the Apostle Paul goes Jesus, and then the Apostle Paul is my guy in Scripture. I love the Apostle Paul. I wish my life looked like the Apostle Paul's. Right? He is a prolific evangelist. He speaks the truth. People come to faith in Christ. He's a prolific church planner. he got churches all over the known world at this point that are born out of the ministry that he has bled for and cried over, right? On Paul's resume, you can find his credentials, Philippians 3, 4 through 6. He says, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. I mean, that's the resume that Paul slides across the table when he's going in for a job interview, right? On top of that, you find his list of sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11, 22 through 28. It says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they the servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman, right? Because people are speaking against him and he's having to defend himself. He says, this sounds idiotic, but here we are. Right? He says, I'm a better one. Talking about being a servant of Christ. I'm a better one with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. We haven't gotten to that part yet. 
Um, I have spent a night and a day in the open sea on frequent journeys. I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing, not to mention other things. There's the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. So this is, this is everything that Paul is bringing to the table along with all that. He's raised people from the dead. He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. All, of course, through the power of Jesus. He's just a vessel, right? So he's not even proclaiming, I have this power. But he could say, this has happened through me. Right? According to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul has also gone to heaven. The third heaven, right? The one where God is. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2 through 10, it says, I know a man in Christ, and he's referring to himself. I know a man in Christ who was called up to the third heaven 14 years ago. He says, whether he was in body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. So he doesn't know if this was like he physically went up there or if this was kind of an out-of-body experience. Some people believe that when he was stoned nearly to death, that this might have been when that happened is speculation, though. Um, he says, I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows, was called up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except my weaknesses. Right? He's been to heaven, seen God in person. He's like, I'm not going to boast about that guy. I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I would be telling the truth. But I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weakness, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And then, as if that weren't enough, because of what Christ did on the cross, Paul isn't under the law anymore. None of the ceremonial law matters anymore in Christ. Right, so if Paul has a son and he doesn't want to circumcise his son, he's not breaking any laws. Right, he doesn't have to live according to these Jewish rituals any longer. But what we see here amazes me. Right, Paul willingly submits himself to these rituals for the unity of the church. So that there wouldn't be conflict in the church. He was willing to put himself down, even though everything that was being said about him was completely untrue. He was willing to go through this so that there would be unity in the church. Nothing he was asked to do compromises the gospel in any way, right? Uh, if, if it were, I'm sure he would have refused that, right? So he is willing to put down his rights so that the church would be unified, so that he wouldn't be uh, a dividing point in the body of Christ. 
He's like, I will, I will lay myself down to show them that I love them enough to prove that they're not correct. All right, so we see this, right? When this happens, you've got Paul goes in, and then you see him trying to, trying to do what God has called him to do. We see that Paul is willing to do whatever it takes to maintain unity in the church. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23, he says, Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews to those under the law like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. That's a lot of law. To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every means possible save some. I will become whatever is necessary as long as it is not sinful for me to do so in order to save some. Right? Now I do all of this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. Paul is willing to do whatever it takes to establish peace as long as it doesn't make him go against the gospel or commit sin. He's willing to do whatever is necessary to establish peace. So he does. And it ends very, very badly. Now, Let's go back to reading what I was trying to read a minute ago. Beginning in verse 26, we're going to read to 36. So the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was stirred up, and the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment and all Jerusalem that all Jerusalem was in chaos. Taking along soldiers and centurions, he immediately ran down to them. Seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander approached, took him into custody, ordered him bound with two chains. He asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. Since he was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered him to be taken, taken into the barracks. When Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mass of people followed yelling, get rid of him. So Paul does what he is asked to do by the leaders of the church. He submits himself to the authority of his elders, and this is the exact thing that leads to the prophecies about him being captured coming true. His obedience to his elders led to his arrest. All right, the, the Jews seize the opportunity while he's in the temple uh, to capture him. And what this should say to us is that sometimes being obedient to God leads to our suffering. Right? It, it's almost guaranteed, yeah? All right? 
And by saying almost, I mean that it is. It is guaranteed. If we follow God the way that we are called to follow God, we have been told in no uncertain terms that we will suffer, that we will face persecution because this world is against the God of the universe. And when we honor him, then we will be discredited, we will be dishonored in that process. But Paul, knowing what is coming for him, he is still obedient, doing everything that he can to to be unified with the church. The Jews seize the opportunity when they see him in the temple and they capture him. Uh, They spread more lies about him. Not probably not intentionally, but again, this goes back to that idea of assumptions. They saw him walking around with uh, one of his Ephesian brothers, and they assumed that because he was in the temple and there were some other guys in the temple that he had brought this Gentile into the temple, which is punishable by death. And so they they made some assumptions, right? And so, uh, but it's still not true. And so they think, hey, we've got even more reasons to beat this man. We have even more reasons to kill him. And it says that the whole city is stirred up and they drag him out of the temple uh, to try to kill him. And the Romans intervene by taking Paul into custody, right? Or he would have been beaten to death uh, by this mob. They try to find out what's going on and, and it's happened several times when you see these riots start up. You've got one group saying this and one group saying that. Nobody really knows why they're angry. Right? So they're just, you know, it's really easy to, to get people worked up into a frenzy. And so these people are frenzied. They have no idea why they're mad, but they're mad. And they're taking it out on Paul. And so you see that they want, they want him gone. Right? It says, get rid of him. Much like what was said about Jesus. Get rid of him. So they're looking for Paul to be wiped off the face of the earth. Right? And he did it all while honoring the Lord. So, I mean, we see a lot of similarities between Paul and Jesus in just this one chapter, right? We see his people turn on him. We see them get worked up into a frenzy. We see him shouted to get rid of him. But, I mean, we're not there, right? We're not in this moment. Persecution for us is is a joke, honestly, at this point uh, in our culture, So what do we do when we see Paul's life? How do we replicate that as much as we can in our life? Well, I've got two things that I want to talk about as far as application is concerned. All right, number one, we want to practice humility. Right, we want to practice humility. When we are in relationship with another person, the scriptures tell us by God's word and his example, that we are to be the least important person in that relationship. Right? The least important person in the room. And like I said, like when I read what what James told Paul to do, like I could I felt the lack of humility rise up in me. Right? The lack the indifference of what people think. Right? Do you believe something about me that's not true? I don't care. That's not humble. That's not humility. Right? At the very least, I should try to, to make you believe that whatever you believe about me is not true. Because I should care about the unity of this church. 
right? And if you believe untrue things about me or about one another, then the church is disunified, right? Or with this notion of, don't you know who I am, right? But granted, I'm nobody. So it's a little different when you've got the Apostle Paul and then Chris Hamblin. Like, but you might be somebody, right? You might be able to, you know, like cop pulls you over and you just show them your ID and they're like, well, have a good day, right? Sorry, didn't realize who you were. Right? You might be that person. Do you have the humility that Paul shows in this instant? Right? Do you have the humility of Christ, who Paul says, you know, obviously is, is God, but did not consider being worshipped as God as a thing to be striven for, strove for, striding for? One of those words. Right? He's, he's not lording himself over people in this moment. He's being humble. He's showing himself as the atoning sacrifice. Do we have that same humility that, that Christ has, that Paul had? Right? Or are we someone that rushes to our own defense, that insists upon our rights? Now, you're going to do this my way. Right? Do you know how long I've been here? Do you know how long I've sat in this seat and parked in that spot out there? You know, I've been here. I got here before you, and I'll be here after you're gone. Like, is that how you think about this place? Or are you willing to lay down your rights so that by all means, anyone that comes through those doors might hear and learn about Jesus? And they can learn that you love him because of your willingness to sacrifice your rights for their good. Are you humble? And secondly, do you consider yourself willing to submit to your leadership in this church? Right? There are going to be times when you are called to do things because I feel like God is leading this church to that. Now, obviously, I'm not infallible. But if there's nothing unreasonable about those exhortations, would you be willing to submit yourself to that as one who has been called by God to give account for your souls? I am going to be held to a harsher judgment because I have stepped into a leadership role in God's kingdom. And because of that, I care about your well-being a lot. I want to see you thrive in the kingdom of God. I want to see your ministry go forth from this place from week to week and see people coming to faith, people being prayed for, just see the darkness in your life pushed back because of what the Holy Spirit will do through you. And sometimes that will lead to me saying, hey, maybe you should try this. Or you should definitely do this. Or, hey, you know that conflict you had that was very public? You need to apologize. Will you submit yourself to leadership the way that Paul submitted himself? Like, who's going to tell the Apostle Paul what to do? Well, James is because James was his spiritual leader. And he was willing to submit himself to that leadership for the unity of the church. So these two things go hand in hand. Your humility and your willingness to subject yourself to leadership are intertwined. 
So as we pray, I want you to think, am I the type of person who is humble and who is willing to submit myself to leadership? Let's pray. Father, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me to see how much the Apostle Paul was willing to be humbled and humiliated in order to bring your name honor and glory. And I ask that we collectively as a church would have the same humility in us that we would strive for unity in this church. Um, but most, most importantly, Lord, me. Lord, I pray that I would be humble the way that Paul is humble, the way that Jesus is humble. And I pray that the hearts of everyone here listening today would be, would strive for that humility as well. Or that we would see ourselves, every one of us, as under leadership of some kind. And that we would submit ourselves to that leadership so that we can represent you well to a lost and dying world. And as we go from this place, help us to be mindful of our sin natures. Help us to be mindful of how sin creeps into our life and how we have a tendency to... Um, either be blind to it or to push it aside because we don't want to believe that about ourselves. But help us to see the truth of who we are today as we go from here. Lord, don't let us leave this place the same as we came in. Help us to be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that when we go, people see a difference in us tomorrow more than they would see in us today. I love you. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. Thank you.